Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to continue our monthly prayer series today. First Sunday of every month, we have one of our prayer sections, and then on Mondays, I'll say more about this in just a moment, on Mondays, we pray as a body through the prayer that we just learned today. Now, we are having our monthly upreach service tonight, which is at 6 o'clock, and we have child care. We hope to see you out for the monthly prayer service. I'd like to... I'm looking forward to it. We were uh, scheduled to be away last time um, for spring break, and the Sunday morning before the emergency at our house occurred, and so I'm looking forward to being back praying with God's people. It's one of the most important services that we have here at Fellowship Bible Church, and for those of you who have attended, they're one of the most worshipful. It's experiential prayer as much as we can manage, and if you've never been, I hope you'll come out and enjoy that with us. Ephesians chapter 3, let's pick up our reading in verse 14, and we're going to read down through the end of the chapter, through verse 21. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to understand the meaning of this passage today, but more importantly, give us the strength of soul and the reminders from the Spirit to be praying these words regarding this body. May we, the people of Fellowship Bible Church, rise up and pray these very words for the people of Fellowship Bible Church. It's what, you've, it's what you expect from us and what you've commanded of us such a simple thing, set aside time to pray. Yet such a neglected thing and such a hard thing, it's no wonder the devil fights it so much. And so may we rise up by your grace and be people who speak these words back to you. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, children, I'd like to tell you about a man named Franklin. Franklin, he was, in his time probably the most powerful person on the face of the earth. I really mean that. Humanly speaking, he was the most important man in the world. He was at the peak of his powers about eight years before Pastor Dom was even born, you can imagine. He was the president of the United States of America. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR children, was his name, Franklin. Franklin was a large man. He had a huge wingspan, 
big hands. When he was a young man, he was an athlete. But as he grew a little older, something funny began to happen with his feet. He started to lose his balance. And then his knees. And then his hips. And suddenly he had a hard time walking. And suddenly he couldn't walk at all. And for the last many years of his life, Franklin could only move around in a wheelchair. Franklin was insecure about his wheelchair. You children know what insecure means? It's something about you that you don't like. Now, I've, I'm told that I'm short, okay? I've never really liked being a short person. I try not to think of myself as a short person, but apparently I am. And when there's 13-year-olds in our church that are taller than me now, I think that means I'm short, okay? Well, Franklin was insecure about his wheelchair. He didn't let photographers take pictures of him in his wheelchair. He didn't let videographers take videos of him in his wheelchair. There was one time, though, when his wheelchair, he didn't mind letting other people see. He would visit soldiers who had gotten hurt and were in the hospital. The most powerful man in the world would roll his wheelchair up to a wounded soldier who was sleeping. And this wounded soldier who the day before was in some jungle that nobody knew about would wake up and there in front of him was Franklin, the most powerful man in the world. And the soldier would go, whoa, you're President Roosevelt. And he would go, indeed I am. You can call me Franklin. <laughs> and Franklin would tell them, I know exactly how you feel. At the height of my physical ability, my legs were taken from me. You can rebound from this. You can overcome this injury. You can rise up and do great things. Look at my wheelchair. Let that be an inspiration to you. And everybody talks. Everybody who saw this happen, it's written time and time again, talks about how when people saw this scene that I just described for you children, it would inspire. It's a great man coming to a person who was hurt and sad. And they would take courage from the great man. Well, children, did you know that Christ, Jesus Christ, is so much bigger and mightier and greater than Franklin Delano Roosevelt ever dreamed of being? And our Savior was hurt and broken, and wounded. And he comes to you all the same and says, I know exactly how you feel. And I want to help you. And what we learn in this prayer, children, is we're supposed to think about that a lot. And we're supposed to pray about that a lot. And so I hope for the rest of this sermon, for the rest of the month, 
you'll think about this prayer, and you'll think about Christ, as will your parents. Let's get a little context from Ephesians chapter 3 before we begin our study of it. As I said before, Fellowship Bible Church has been doing a monthly church-wide prayer exercise. What we would like for the people of Fellowship Bible Church to do is to learn these prayers once a month on the first Sunday of the month, come back and pray them during upreach, and then every Monday of that month to be praying for us what we learned from that prayer. I'd really like to encourage us, I, this month, because I missed that service where we learned about the prayer, I felt disconnected from Fellowship Bible Church. I felt disconnected from the prayer needs. And I would like to encourage you, whatever your participation has been up to this point in our prayer project, if perhaps every Monday that comes along, it slips your mind and you go, oh, I should have prayed that way. Or if you've been very faithful in praying on Mondays, these prayer passages for us, whatever your situation has been, as Paul tells us in, other pl- in another place, that's the past, put it behind you, don't look back. Let's look ahead and strive forward. And let's commit, even right now in your hearts, to follow the Lord in prayer. Let's, let's commit right now, let's pledge ourselves to this prayer this month. Whatever your success or failure has been at prayer, it doesn't matter anymore. You can't change it. So let's move ahead, let's look forward, and let's make this an anthem of our prayers on Mondays. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Now let's look at a little Bible context. I read this prayer to you before, but let's remind ourselves. We recently finished up a study in the book of Ephesians. But just as a reminder, the Apostle Paul was writing this prayer from prison. And he's writing to Christians who live in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a giant city. And it was a place where Paul took the gospel to. He planted this church. And he wrote them a letter from jail saying, I'm in jail for your cause. It was for you that I landed myself here. And I don't want you to be discouraged about that. In fact, I'm writing to you. And he's a man who's intimately acquainted with these people. And he loves them very much. (coughs) And so Paul's explaining to people in prison, why he's there, and he tells them that he's praying for them. And this is one of the many prayers that fills this book. But this is a prayer that's probably at the height of the whole book of this book of Ephesians. Here is a prayer that Paul is praying for the people of Ephesus. Now let's grab a few assumptions about this prayer before we move forward. What are three assumptions that we need to take as we study such a rich passage of scripture. Number one, God expects regular people to pray Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 in their own words regularly. Okay? God expects regular people like you guys to pray these words regularly. Now, as we read through this passage, when you read about the riches of the glory of his grace, that, he, that you may be strengthened with the power of the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. For how many of you was like, man, that's, that's pretty complicated. That's a heady prayer. Well, yes, it is. Yes, it is. But God who made you and who made your mind knows that you can pray these words. 
He knows that you can sink your teeth into this prayer. He knows that if you put your mind to it, regular folks can be, make this prayer part of their regular prayer life. It's what God expects of you, who equipped you, he made you. And I'd like to inform you that you've been given many more advantages than the people who heard this prayer originally. The people who lived in Ephesus didn't have this in many different translations. They simply heard this by word of mouth. Many of them were illiterate. And yet, they were expected, these regular folks, to pray these words regularly. In the 1980s, there developed, the early 80s, there developed a scourge in the Christian church. Something called the seeker service. That sounds so spiritual. The two men who architected this thing Turns out they're frauds. They're enemies of Christianity to this day. But it's stuck. It's stuck in our circles of faith. And one of the main tenets of the seeker service is that theology has to be dumbed down. We can't go over anything too complicated. Otherwise, people will go out the back door and will never come back. And God's people should have been insulted by this. But they accepted. And we're still fighting against those trends today. Paul is pushing back. This passage is pushing back against a sort of mindless Christianity. He wants us to gird up the loins of our mind and pray this sort of way regularly. Ephesians 4, 30, 14 through 21, the second assumption, is a prayer of impossibility. It's an impossible prayer. Listen to what he says. He says that he wants us to know unknowable love. Paul is praying that we would know unknowable love. Love that we can never get to the end of. He has something impossible in mind that we're supposed to be praying. He wants you, a finite person, a jar of clay, we're told in 2 Corinthians. He wants you to be filled with with the fullness of God. He wants you in your own heart to be possessed with consuming omnipresence. How do you cram infinite into you? How do you cram unknowable into your limited mind? It's impossible. Yet we're to be praying for it. Number three, <coughs> Ephesians 3, 14 through, 14 through 21 assumes two things. Number one, that God is our biggest need. Now, we have a lot of needs, and I readily acknowledge all of those. We have health needs, we have financial needs, we have family needs, we have physical needs. There's all sorts of needs that every one of us have come through the doors today with a different set of needs. Some of us need wisdom, some of us need grace, some of us need all sorts of things. But our ultimate need is more of God. And when we're up against a trial, that might sound a bit harsh. But what God wants the trial to do and what he wants himself to do is not necessarily to change everything around you. He wants to change you. And he wants everything around you and his glory and his presence to change you. And suddenly you're better equipped to deal with all this other stuff that's out there. 
because he has been the ultimate answer to the needs that you face. And the best medicine to getting more God into your life, the best medicine of having more God, the the regimen, as it were, to get more of this need that you have, is an ever-rising appreciation of Christ. That's the best medicine for you. An ever-escalating appreciation for Christ will put in you the eternal. It will put in you what is your greatest need, and that's to understand God in ever greater ways. And then you'll be better equipped to tackle the situations that you face. You'll be better equipped to deal with the emergencies that arise. You'll be better equipped to deal with the health crises that come into your life. An ever-rising appreciation of what Christ has done for you in the face of the glory of God will better prepare and equip you to receive more of God into your life, and that is the ultimate solution to your problems. That's what this prayer assumes. It assumes that your greatest need is God and the best medicine is more Jesus Christ. Now, let's get into the content of the prayer because this is the prayer that regular people like us are supposed to be praying regularly. So what is it that we should be praying? What are are these impossible words that we should be uttering back to God? Well, here's the points. Number one, let's start with the ultimate end of Paul's prayer. This is a case where it might help us a little bit to go out of order biblically to understand where Paul's going with it. Okay, so let's go ahead to verse 18. These are the ultimate requests that the Apostle Paul's making for us. He prays that, that, that number one, the impossible end, he is praying that you would know the facts of Christ's love. Okay, He wants you to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and what is the length and what is the height and what is the depth of Christ, the love of Christ. Now, he wants you to know the facts of that. He wants you to rest secure in all the things that Christ has done for you. He wants you to meditate on all the different facets that Christ has done for you. He wants you to know the facts of it. But he wants you to know something more than facts. He, he wants you to have something more than a bare Bible understanding. He wants you to experience personally the overwhelming love of Christ. Now let's, let's look at how we find this. In verse 18 he says, I'm praying that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You might want to circle the word know and the word knowledge and draw a line connecting to them because they're words with the same Greek root. I don't know why it escapes our attention so much when it comes over to English, but if you were to be able to read this in Greek, it would really stand out to you. Now, this is the sort of knowing that is experiential. I remember as a kid, the local amusement park had installed a roller coaster that you would sit down in, and then it would lean you forward. It was called the Superman. And you would fly around the roller coaster track, leaned forward like Superman. 
Now, they would put on the television advertisements for the new Superman roller coaster. And they had advertisements that would tell you about the length of the track and the height of the drop and the ultimate speed that it would take and the angle that you would go on and, and how safe it was that you were locked into this position and you could learn all the facts about it. But children, could you really know the Superman roller coaster until you got on to ride the Superman roller coaster? It's one thing to know all about it. It's another thing to go on a ride. And that is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I want you to live it. That's the word here in Greek, gnorizo, to know personally, to experience personally. I want you to know the facts of the love of Christ. But more than that, I want you to know, I want you to experience the personal knowledge of Christ that is so deep and meaningful, it actually surpasses knowledge. There's no fact that you can get your mind around that will help you understand it better. There's no school of theology that will teach it to you. You have to live it to know it. That's what Paul is praying for. I'm praying that you would know it and that you would live it and that you would see it and experience it. And oftentimes we... We don't really know the love of Christ until he puts us into a fiery furnace, as it were. And we have to feel the deliverance, even more so from our sins. We have to feel the deliverance of Christ from sticky situations or trials or troubles. And Paul is praying that we would know that. And then he prays for another impossibility. He prays that we would be filled with the fullness. And here again is another one of those same words. You might want to circle them and draw a line and connect them that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says that God has put eternity into our hearts. God can fit into your heart because he made it so. And God wants to reside there. He wants to fill you. He wants to be present in there. Now, We can have God in us when we are born again, when we're born of the Spirit, regenerated. God the Spirit comes to reside in our hearts. But there are degrees to which you experience His presence. Christ can tell the church at Laodicea, I'm standing outside the door and knocking. And you're going to have to open up the door of your heart to let me in. It's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit of God and to quench the Spirit of God. What Paul is praying for is sort of a full-throttled, opened-up experience of the fullness of Christ and God in your soul. That's what he's praying for. Now, let's back out of the prayer for just a moment. Paul is praying some impossible things that you will know the infinite, unknowable love of Christ and that God, the omnipresent, omniscient, consuming holy fire would dwell inside your heart. Are those possibilities? Not humanly speaking, no. So how does God prepare you for the impossible? How does God prepare you 
to receive this thing that can't happen apart from his grace. Now let's go back to the beginning of the prayer and we'll see how he sort of paves the way for us to receive this impossibility. In this preparation for the impossible, in chapter 3, verse 16, he says he wants us to be lavishly strengthened by the Spirit's mighty power. He says right here, he says that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. For you to know the love of Christ, for you to have God dwelling in you, you need strength and power and might. He prays also in preparation for you to receive the impossible. Not only do you need strength lavished on you, he says you need to have Christ. Chapter 3, 17, the very first part, he says you need to have Christ to make his home in your heart. Now, what does our translation say right here in verse 17? <coughs> it says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, that word dwell can mean a few different things. How many of you children have gone camping over the weekend and you've dwelt for a few days, in a tent. Anybody? How many of you? Oh, a few of you. What did you call the tent home? And Schaefer's going, no, probably not. <laughs> we might call the tent home for a couple of days, but it's not home. Right now, my family is living in a rental property. It's a very nice place, and we're fortunate to have it. We feel very privileged that we can live there while our house is being repaired. It's not home. It's a place where we dwell temporarily. Now, the word that's used here is the word for to take up residence permanently, to reside continually, to make it home. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, we're told that to prepare you, to prepare you to know the unknowable, to be filled with eternal fullness, not only do you need to be strengthened by the glorious strength of God, but you need Christ to call your heart home. You need him to take up residence there. And that prepares you. The third thing that prepares you to receive the impossible is Paul is praying that you would have a deeply rooted foundation in the love of Christ. A deeply rooted foundation in the love of Christ. Now, admittedly, and I think Paul would admit this, if we were here interviewing the Apostle Paul, if we were saying, Paul, what did you mean by this? He would say, well, admittedly, I mixed my metaphors. And there's two metaphors that he's mixing here. The first one is the picture of tree roots that go way down into the ground. I'm always surprised at how deep tree roots go, especially when you've been tasked to take out what is a seemingly small tree. 
He's just a tiny little guy, and their roots go down forever and ever, and you can never get rid of them. Paul's saying you need a tree roots that go way down. And then he uses a second metaphor, and that is to build a foundation. A, a foundation that goes deep underneath the surface of the earth. It's got rocks and boulders stacked underneath of it. And back then even, they had forms of concrete that would fill in the gaps so that when you put a wall on it, it never sinks. It stays rock solid. And so Paul is saying, if you want, if you want to have the impossible, if you want to know the unknowable love of Christ, if you want to have the fullness of God dwelling in your heart, you need to have a deeply rooted foundation. You're going to encounter a lot of things in this life. You're going to read a lot of theology in your Bible. You're going to read a lot of accounts. And if you don't have a foundation that sinks deep into the love of Christ, you're going to be knocked right off and flattened before you know it. The love of God in Christ Jesus is the foundation. It's the cornerstone of your theology. And it needs to hold there firm. These are the preparation points that you need for the impossible. You need to be lavishly strengthened by the Spirit's mighty power. You need to have Christ make his home in your heart. And you need to possess a deeply rooted foundation in the love of God and Christ. Now, what is the result of this impossible prayer? Well, God will be glorified. That's the result. We read here, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. There will be glory to God who will accomplish more than we thought possible. If the people of Fellowship Bible Church begin praying the impossible for Fellowship Bible Church, assuming that God is our greatest need, and what we need is a more robust theology of Christ, an ever-sensing experiential knowledge of the love of Christ, if that's the greatest medicine, and we're praying for that, and for the preparatory matters to be settled in our hearts as we grow this way, God will do so much more than we could even imagine to his glory and credit, not to ours. Number two, glory to God will result. God will be glorified because he will work on an infinite scale. It says that he'll work according to the riches of his grace. That he will work, what does it say here? That he'll do far more abundantly according to the power of at work within us. Well, what's the power at work within us? Well, it's God's power. And God likes to work on a divine scale because he's God. And rest assured, God is training you. God is preparing you, not for this life, but for the next. He's fitting you for eternity. And he's got eternity in mind as he shapes you. He wants you to have the same eternal perspective. And when we begin praying this way, God will do so much more for the sake of eternity than we ever thought for his glory. Number three, God will be glorified through us. 
the redeemed and gathered people of God. Now this cuts right to the heart of how people think about church. What is, what is church for? How many of you grew up in an area of the country where going to church is a verb? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, we're going to go to church today. What's that mean? It means we're going to go to church. <laughs> what are you going to do the other six days of the week? Well, I don't know. Church is a verb. Well, in the New Testament, church is a noun. Church is a group of people. It's not a building. It's not an activity. It's not a morality. It's not a political persuasion. A church is a gathering of God's people who organize themselves to glorify God. And when that gathered group of people begins praying this way, God derives great glory from those gathered people praying eternal things back to the eternal God in whom God resides and dwells. How, do, how does a group of people like this expand people's vision of God? Well, we pray these words back to God and stand back and behold his salvation and watch him do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think in our hearts. And then last, glory to God. And it says through Christ Jesus. Paul, this word Christ means the Messiah. Glory to God through Christ. We're praying for an ever-heightened understanding. We're praying that this Savior would prepare the ground in our hearts and reside in our hearts, and that Christ would only be the word on our lips. And in so doing, Christ magnifies God. Christ glorifies God in our praying. Now, Let's go back to our first assumption very briefly. Let's go back to our first. What was, can somebody remind me of what our first assumption was about this prayer? Say, say, it out, say it out nice and loud. What was our first assumption about this prayer? Yeah. Who should pray it? Regular people. How often? Regularly, that's right. So, how many, how many of us feel a little lost in the woods now? <laughs> I know I do. So let's bring it back so that we regular people can start praying this prayer regularly. Let me give some prayer tips so that we can pray this prayer successfully this month. Okay, number one, some prayer helps. Start generally and corporately, and by that I mean be praying for Fellowship Bible Church, remembering to use the correct pronouns. Now, there's a portion of our country right now that is obsessed with pronouns. We should be concerned about certain pronouns as well. And one of those is the way we talk about our church. It's really important. It's really, really important that sooner or later you start talking about Fellowship Bible Church as us and we, rather than they and them. Now, some of us are at a stage 
where we're still exploring Fellowship Bible Church. And please don't let this admonition short-circuit that process. If you're just recently coming here and you, you are still sort of exploring, that's good and appropriate. But I would say that if after about, depending on your background and whatnot, if after about six months, you're still saying they and them rather than us, we, and are, that that is something that needs addressing. You need to ask yourself why. Now, Fellowship Bible Church might not be for everybody, and that's okay. Let's help you get to a place where you can say, yes, that's me, that's us, that's we, our. That's healthy for you and healthy for us. It really is. But maybe there's a reason you're sort of holding back and you're still sort of from the outside looking in and there's no reason for you not to step into the community of faith and say, this is my church, this is us, I am part of this gathered people of Christ, and I need to pray for us and our people. Join your hearts collectively with the people that you're worshiping with. And we begin praying this prayer for us as Fellowship Bible Church. Lord, I pray that from that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with your power through the Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Do you see what I'm doing? Pray that for yourselves. For us. We. Our. Number two. After you spend some time praying collectively for us and we and our, then you move to individuals. And you can do this a variety of ways. You can pray for whoever the Lord brings to mind. You can pray this for your prayer partner. You can get a little more organized than that and divide the people of our church up into four weeks and be praying for them. Some of you engineers will do that. You'll have a little spreadsheet and you'll, you'll make sure to spend equal time on every person and you'll check a little box and it will be Excel glory. That is not me. Well, you start praying specifically for their needs according to this passage. Now, I'm going to use two names. I figure they're the safest names for me to use. One is my wife, and one is my friend, our associate pastor, Pastor Chris. Okay, so I'm telling them ahead of time so they don't feel picked on. Okay. Uh, imagine praying like this. Okay. I pray for Daniel Baker. Danielle, Danielle, pray for Danielle. May she so well know her indwelling Savior that when she speaks to her children, to her husband, or to those under her spiritual care, it's Christ speaking. Do you see how that's tied to here? Do you see how that fits her situation? She's got five children. But more importantly, she's got a husband she has to keep track of, okay? And he needs to have truth spoken to him regularly. 
She needs Christ speaking to her husband. That means she needs deep roots and a deep foundation in the love of Christ. So when the moment comes, she'll be ready to speak Christ to the people she needs to speak him to. She needs this prayer. So let's take Pastor Chris. I pray for Pastor Chris. There are so many things that he does for you. He needs the wealth of your glorious power for use in all his tasks, all the many different variety of tasks that he performs. He needs a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and grace to tackle all of those. He needs a wealth of your power as he builds relationships, as he pushes people toward Christ. Do you see how we're tying this passage to individual members of our church? And let us remember, God expects regular people like us to be praying this for our people regularly. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. Would you commit to the Lord to pray this way for our people this month? After that, we're going to observe the Lord's table. It's what we do the first Sunday of every month. If you didn't build that into your schedule and you got to roll out of here, that's perfectly fine. We understand. <coughs> in between my finishing in prayer and us starting the Lord's table, Nathan is going to come lead us in a final song. If you need to slip out, that's your time. Please do it then. We'd love for you to stay, though. We take 10, maybe 15 minutes to observe the Lord's table, and we would love for you to stay for that portion of our service, but we would understand if you need to go. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in Fellowship Bible Church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Father, would you give us grace to commit to praying these words for our people? Lord, please, in the short term even, do far more abundantly above all that we could ask or even dream, simply as confirmation and encouragement to your people to ascend to greater heights of prayer. Lord, would you help each of us, whether we've been participating regularly or not, in our monthly prayer times this year so far, would you help us to commit? And by your grace, not by our own works, but by your grace, help us to take this prayer up for you, for your glory. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.